This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. It's an understatement to say that it's an interesting time to be a man. It's hard to go online these days without hearing about the patriarchy, toxic masculinity, and men behaving badly. There's a growing narrative out there in the popular media and on social media that men are trash and that they need to do better. The response of some men has been to push back, and that has culminated in what's often referred to as the manosphere, an online network of men's rights activists pushing back against feminism. A lot of guys are flocking to these radical online communities because they feel rejected by society. The end result is that tensions are rising. So let's talk about men, masculinity, and male sexuality in the 21st century. In today's show, we're going to explore questions including how the issues facing men have changed in recent years, the truth about testosterone, why men experience so much sexual shame, and more. My guest today is Dr. Eric Fitzmedred, a therapist specializing in relationship and sexual issues in the San Francisco Bay Area. His specialty is helping men improve their intimate lives. His latest book is titled The Better Man, A Guide to Consent, Stronger Relationships, and Hotter Sex. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Are you passionate about building a career in sexuality? Look no further than the Sexual Health Alliance. With Shaw, you'll connect with world-class experts and join an engaged community of sexuality professionals from all around the world. Whether you're just beginning your journey or are in the process of building advanced skills, Shaw's comprehensive certifications, engaging events, and self-paced online training will move you beyond the basics and set you up to be a rising star in the field. Visit SexualHealthAlliance.com and start building the sexuality career of your dreams today. The Kinsey Institute at Indiana University has been a trusted source for scientific knowledge and research on critical issues in sexuality, gender, and reproduction for over 75 years. Learn about recent research, events, and student activities on their website at kinseyinstitute.org. You can also follow them on social media at Kinsey Institute. Hi, Eric, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me. So you recently published a book titled The Better Man, A Guide to Consent, Stronger Relationships, and Hotter Sex. Tell us a little bit about the story behind this book. What was the inspiration for writing it? There are really two kind of origin stories for it. The first is personal. You know, I've been going through my own sexual discovery process for life, of course, but also learning, sometimes unfortunately the hard way, about some of my own training gaps in consent and emotional regulation and desire regulation. And in my process of learning what I hadn't learned, I found that it was also clinically helpful for me to begin teaching my clients some of those same skills. And then historically, 
as the Me Too hashtag movement on social media was really hitting its firestorm levels in late 2017, I was in clinical practice, not working with people with the kind of predatory consent violations that we were often seeing in headlines, but really seeing that there's a consent culture gap that's showing up in my office. Clients pressuring their partners for sex, clients not knowing how to regulate their desires, not knowing how to talk about their fantasies, and and having them lead themselves into problems and damaging their relationships in that process. And early 2018, there was a particular story, and I was like, ah, now with that story as a seed, I think I have something to write. I thought it was going to be a single blog post, then I thought it was going to be two and four and eight blog posts, and eventually I realized, oh no. I'm writing a book. Oh no, I wish it had been an easier topic. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an easy topic, that's for sure. But it's a much needed one because we don't have a lot of great discussions about this particular topic and we're going to dive into that today. So thanks for sharing that origin story. Now, at the risk of sounding controversial, it's kind of a tough time to be a man. So in the popular media and on social media, you're going to hear on a daily basis about the patriarchy, about toxic masculinity, and about men behaving badly. And it seems like there's a new story every day about a male celebrity accused of sexual misconduct. But these stories aren't just limited to celebrities anymore. We're increasingly hearing about regular guys being canceled for their behavior. So, for example, last year there was the whole uproar about West Elm Caleb, who was this furniture designer accused of engaging in shitty online dating behavior, and it became this viral sensation. Now, there's really just this whole narrative out there that says men are trash. And that phrase itself has become a common internet punchline. And so I say all of this because I think it leads to a very important question you raise early on in your book, which is, is it even okay to be a man? So what's your answer to that? So my quick answer is, of course, it's okay to be a man. And with all of those narratives coming in, it can feel painful and uncertain to know how to be a man? What is good about being a man? How can we celebrate, honor what's unique about our manhood, about masculinity, if that's something that we identify with, and also accept the messages that are coming in about maybe we need to learn in order to maintain our relationships, in order to be kind to others, in order to lift our communities up, and in order to allow them to lift us up too. So I think this is a changing time to be a man, where we're shifting from narrow, two-dimensional ideas of what it means to be a man or what masculinity looks like to multidimensional, diverse ways of being men and what our different masculinities might look like. And exactly that that pain of critique and confrontation is a big part of what I want to connect to with my readers at the beginning because the desire to be a good man is very strong in many of us and uncertainty about how to do that is also clear and common. Yes. And, you know, as you were speaking about that, I couldn't help but think about kind of my own experiences in terms of like what I was told growing up about what being a man is or what it means to be masculine. And I'm not saying that the messages I got were necessarily good or healthy ones, you know, the things like boys don't cry and so forth. But things have shifted a lot in the last couple of decades. And 
you know, I think you still hear those same messages that I heard when I was growing up, but now you also hear a lot of things on another side saying men should be in touch with their emotions and all these other sorts of things. And so it also makes it kind of a confusing and contradictory time uh, because you're getting all these different messages at once. And so it's kind of like, I can see why it would be a confusing time, particularly for young men when you've got messages that are kind of all over the board. Absolutely. And I think it's also true for older men, you know, middle-aged men, older men who are hearing the messages, the invitation to move towards vulnerability, the invitation to move towards emotional expression, who then with their partners begin making those first forays into emotional expression and sometimes unskillfully, just like any new skill is something done poorly at first as we're learning <laughs> and then begin getting critique. I see that fairly often in my office. He begins opening up. He says something vulnerable. He says something connecting to his pain. And then he gets critiqued for taking up the space or for not being empathetic to the partner's pain right away. And that often causes a backlash. You know, well, I just opened the doors. I'm going to close them even more tightly now. And so I do think there's the, the conflicting messages. And I think in a way we need to kind of clear the space to refocus and recenter on who am I? What kind of man am I? What does my masculinity look like? Where is it generative? Where is it nurturing? Where is it vibrant for me? How can it be authentic? And then using the secondary litmus test, how does that connect me with community, with a broad range of other diverse community members? That second litmus test is really important to make sure that we're not just radicalizing into men-only spaces and you know getting angry at everybody else in that process. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the issue of age in that because it's not just young men that we're talking about here. I was thinking about, for example, a midlife man who maybe divorces and they're back out on the dating market and they were in a very long-term relationship and now the world around them has completely changed. And, you know, the way that they behaved previously when it came to dating and relationships and so forth doesn't fly anymore. And so it's also a challenging thing for men at different stages of life. And I think, you know, it's just important that we're not just talking about young guys here. It's all across the life spectrum. But something I wanted to talk about here is that, yes, there are a lot of men out there who have done a lot of bad things. I'm not going to deny or minimize that. But I think that this men are trash narrative is hurting a lot more than it's helping. And I think it's undoubtedly fueling the rise of the so-called manosphere online, where we see all of these blogs and podcasts and online forums dedicated to incels and men's rights activists with people like Andrew Tate serving as very prominent voices. And the things these communities are saying are kind of scary, and some of them are teeming with violent and misogynistic rhetoric. And I'm not surprised that a lot of men are flocking to these forums and finding some sense of belonging because they feel rejected by society. And there's really kind of a void when it comes to sex and relationship education for men. And and I think the manosphere is kind of like eagerly eating that up because we haven't created a healthy alternative. So you have these men who are repeatedly told to do better, but there's no one out there actively trying to teach them how to do better. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts on the manosphere and how as a society, we can help men to do better without pushing them away into those radical communities. 
Yeah, I think that is one of the things that I really looked at as I thought about the shift from connecting to men in my office to thinking about how to connect to men in a more public stage. And I took a look really consciously at Jordan Peterson and Manosphere influencers, and I thought, what is capturing the attention of men, young men? What is it that's drawing them in? And the thing that I kept seeing, and I don't want to endorse any of it, but the thing that I kept seeing was the empathy for men's pain. And I think that there is a lot of men's pain. We know that men commit suicide almost four times the rate of women, that men experience a lot of loneliness and isolation, and that men on dating apps who are heterosexual experience a lot of difficulty finding connection, experiencing constant, repeated experiences of rejection. And that story needs to connect with what can we do about it? How can we liberate ourselves from either the constraints of patriarchal masculinity that hurt us often and traumatized us in our boyhood, while also leaning in vulnerably to, hey, as we claim things like please stop saying such negative things about us. How can we do that in a way that doesn't just get us into suffering Olympics or oppression Olympics with other groups, but unites us with them to say, hey, just as sexually marginalized communities, people of color deserve to be treated and spoken to with respect, so do we men. And so please stop saying such harsh things. We're not denying your pain. We're not trying to say that ours is greater. And please be gentle with us. It will help us to be more gentle with you. You know, I don't envy you for writing a book on this topic because it is tough (laughs) to talk about (laughs) these issues without it devolving into very heated discussions. And so, you know, it is important that we have people like you writing these books and trying to to help educate us on these topics because I see a lot of not-so-productive discussion happening, particularly yeah. online. Yeah. Now, speaking of the manosphere, I wanted to bring up the subject of testosterone, which is an interesting hormone, right? Now, within the manosphere, I find it fascinating that there's all this talk about how to boost testosterone. And there's kind of like this idea that you can't be a desirable man unless you have enough testosterone circulating in your body. And so there are all these guys out there who are trying testosterone supplementation in order to increase it, or they're trying these things that they've been told are going to boost testosterone, like abstaining from masturbation, which isn't true, by the way. Right. But, you know, at the same time, in broader society, so much of men's bad behavior is chalked up to testosterone. And, you know, that's not true either. So, you know, there's just kind of this interesting rhetoric out there around testosterone. And you have a whole section in your book that talks about testosterone myths. So can you tell us a little bit about what we get wrong about this hormone and what it really means for male sexuality anyway? So for testosterone, I think a lot of the old myths about masculinity and men have gotten a little bit of an update under the guise of science about sexuality and science about testosterone. So where it used to be men are just this way, men have to have sex. Now it's, well, testosterone drives us to want sex in these ways. Where it used to be boys will be boys, now it's testosterone makes us violent and aggressive. And so I really think that it's important that we take a look at what does testosterone do? Testosterone is, it's spoken about in the scientific literature as a competition hormone. Mm. 
And I kind of refine that even a little bit further to say, I really like to think of it more as a performance hormone. So whether we're speaking in a boardroom or out on the sports field or dancing on a ballet floor or putting on makeup and doing drag, (laughs) testosterone is informing our competition, our performance, our desire to, you know, hit the new height, to try something new, to make the next point, whether that's an argument point or a point on the sports field. And that is just as influencing of our behavior at moderate levels of testosterone as at high levels. There's a thing called androgen sensitivity that makes us individually influenced by our specific testosterone levels. And so all but at the very, very lowest levels of testosterone, what's termed hypogonadism, is testosterone really kicking our legs out from under us and eliminating our desire. If our testosterone levels are within, you know, something of a range of normal, which is a very, very broad range, the first thing that we should look at is not our testosterone levels, but what's happening in our relationship. And I've seen it time and time again. A man comes into my office. He says, oh, you know, I'm experiencing low desire. I ask about his relationship. He tells me what's going on. And I say, okay, so you're experiencing high levels of critique, maybe emotional or physical abuse. I ask, why would you be experiencing desire in this relationship? And then he gets discouraged because I'm encouraging him to face the realities of how his desire is influenced by his relationship. And then, you know, he goes out, he tries testosterone supplementation, which works for a brief period of time. And then it stops working and he needs to come back in and he needs support again for the realities of desire. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about a lot of different things as you were speaking there. And when I heard testosterone in drag competitions, like, I got to do a study on that. because <laughs> That would be fascinating. I would show. love that. <laughs> you get these big testosterone surges on the drag performance stage. Fascinating. But yeah, I think what you're speaking to is that people... I think have a very simplified understanding of not just sexuality, but sexual problems and often just want to point to one specific biological thing like a hormone imbalance or a neurotransmitter imbalance. And you should just be able to take a pill or get a shot and that should fix it. But the reality of hormones, as we've discussed on previous episodes of the show, is that they're actually quite subtle messengers, right? And the effects of them isn't as big and exaggerated as people think. And they also work in combination with everything else that's happening in your environment. You know, I'm very much a biopsychosocial theorist. And yeah, we got to look at the biology and the hormones, but that's just one factor. And we need to look at that in the context of what's going on in that person's relationship and their broader psychology. And so it's a complex issue. And so anything you see online about, (laughs) you know, just boost testosterone, it's going to fix these problems in your life probably isn't true. Yeah, I'm fond of using the comparison of hockey and basketball to show that culture and the social rules around us create violence or eliminate it, not the presence or absence of testosterone. I think that's a great way to think of it. Now, as a therapist who has been practicing for, I think, 15 or so years now when I was looking at your bio, I'm curious to hear a little bit, and I think you alluded to this earlier, but I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the changes that you've seen among your male clients during that time. And, you know, what are the specific shifts you've seen in the kinds of struggles that men today are dealing with that maybe were less common or less prevalent 
a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for me to also acknowledge as I talk about that shift, as I've seen it in my practice, you know, I've been centered in the San Francisco Bay Area post-pandemic. I've seen clients all across California. And so I'm definitely experiencing one cultural biome as it pertains to this question. But I do see men recognizing in a new way the value of deeper conversations about consent, about emotions, about opening up, about our need for connection, for friends, for community, and shifting away from just the idea, especially in Silicon Valley, right? I'm going to go make a dent in the universe. I'm going to, you know, do this new thing. I'm going to work 80 hours, 100 hours, 120 hours one time and a client a week. And realizing that there is an extreme need for a multidimensional wellness. We need relationship. We need connection. We need value and meaning and purpose in our life that goes beyond work because at any moment that could be sapped and kicked out from under us. I do think that the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter process have shifted an awareness of privilege and men's relationship to oppression and diversity and kind of brought about a little bit of a searching exploration of how do I want to relate to this? And hey, maybe as a part of that, maybe I see in different ways that I've been oppressed and hurt by the system that I've been a part of too. You know, as you were talking about that, I couldn't help but think back to some of the news stories that I saw that emerged during the pandemic since you brought that up. And one of the things I saw that I thought was really interesting was how it was a time where a lot of men really struggled with emotion-related issues because they couldn't see their friends and connect in the way that they did before. And they also realized like their friends weren't calling to check in on them because they didn't really have the kind of intimacy that, you know, a lot of people might have with a friend, you know, so much of it is kind of like superficial when people get together and bond over sporting events and and things like that. But when you're in that period of lockdown and you don't have those opportunities and people aren't reaching out, it was a really difficult time for a lot of men and their mental health and realizing how tenuous so many of the relationships in their lives actually are. And so I think it was for many people kind of this moment of reckoning and realizing how much they really need to cultivate those friendships and they need to be more than just skin deep. And for men who are fathers, the pandemic helped us connect to our children in new and unique ways. And it's one of the reasons that I use a particular bar for friendships and the health of your community. It's just a simple question. If you were ill, who would bring you soup? And if you don't have an answer to that question, you might need to expand your social circle a little bit more. And you might need to think about who can I bring soup to? Who would I know is sick? And how can I support them in that process? Yeah, we need other people and we need other people to need us too. Yes. Now, something I've seen in the last decade or so is that young men really seem to be struggling when it comes to navigating sex and relationships. And that's been especially true since the arrival of the Me Too movement. And I hear from a lot of young guys who want to pursue sexual and romantic relationships, but they're afraid to even flirt with someone because they don't want to be accused of harassment or something worse and then get publicly dragged through the mud on social media. And some of them seem to think it's safer to just avoid sex 
and relationships entirely than run the risk of potential reputational ruin for saying the wrong thing. And so we kind of have this whole generation of men where a lot of them are missing out on the fulfillment that can come from having a romantic life because they're kind of opting out of it because they're scared and anxious. So what's your advice to younger men specifically who kind of like have this paralyzing fear of even approaching someone else and saying the wrong thing? Your sexuality is a gift, and reorganizing your orientation from just preventing reputation damage, just preventing harm to your partner, which of course should be the start of the conversation, to, hey, I have something I want to give. I want to give you pleasure. I'd like to receive pleasure and skill and sexual competence and gifting from you. That is desired. Your vibrance, your vitality, your energy is all beautiful. Please don't deprive the world of that gift. Go back out there. And yes, go care and orient yourself to consent as a sexual ethic, which can help you move towards pleasure and mutuality and mutual benefits so that you're offering a gift, not just trying to get consent. Now, when it comes to getting consent, we're going to talk more about that in the next episode because there are lots of myths and misconceptions surrounding that. So we're going to do a deeper dive. You know, everything you said is important, but that consent piece and how we reframe it and embrace it as a sexual ethic is is a whole separate discussion because there's a lot that's worth diving into there. Now, something else I wanted to ask you about is the issue of sexual shame. And anyone can experience sexual shame, but men seem to be carrying around a lot of it. And that was something that really came out in my research on sexual fantasies. It was kind of surprising to me when I looked at people's fantasies, I gave them all these questions about the emotions that they feel when they think about their fantasies. And I kind of expected that since we live in a society where there's been this long double standard against women's sexuality, that women might actually feel more shame about their sexual fantasies than men. But I actually found the opposite, that men were feeling more shame about their fantasies and desires than women were. And that has real implications for their sexuality. You know, if you're thinking about what it is that turns you on and you're feeling shame, that's a problem. So why do men experience so much sexual shame? And what can you tell us about how we can unburden ourselves from that shame? So our sexual shame often comes from some of that narrative about, you know, men are dogs, men are pigs, men only want one thing. And what we're trying to do in shedding that shame is to realize that fantasy is not behavior. Fantasy is a process that's taking place inside of us. The things that we're fantasizing about, the things that turn us on in the privacy of our own mind, probably we didn't even choose to be turned on by. It probably came as a part of our psychosexual development and some trigger, something connected for us and lit us up. And that's beautiful. It can be a great source of joy and intensity. And as we go from thinking about those fantasies, we have so many choices about what to do about them. We can decide which of our fantasies, if any, we ever want to enact. We can decide which of our partners are safe enough for us to share our fantasies with. We can decide which forms of sexual ethics, whether it's kink, you know, rack, or that is risk-aware consensual kink or safe, sane, and consensual frameworks or open relationship frameworks for consensual non-monogamy. 
or just clear, open conversations about our monogamous vanilla sex that maybe we want to try a new position. But we can use these sexual ethics and these conversations to create comfort and connection for whatever fantasy we're trying to bring into the world. Even if it's, hey, I don't want to do this, but I just like to use some words while we're playing together that remind me of that fantasy and that turn me on. So the fantasy itself doesn't need to have a moral valence to it. And if we can release ourselves from that shame, if we can share that with a partner or a therapist or a very close friend, we can begin to realize that many of the things that we're the most ashamed of are also shared by a lot of other people out there. <laughs> yep, that's so true. If researching sexual fantasies has taught me anything, that is one of the key takeaways. Now, one other question since we've been talking about men and male sexuality in the modern era you talk about this in your book, this idea of men reclaiming their sexuality, and it ties in with this subject of sexual shame that we've just been talking about. You have some helpful exercises that you lay out in the book. So can you just tell us a little bit about other things men can do to help reclaim their sexuality when maybe they have this very complicated relationship with it? Yeah, I think there are two things that I want to highlight here. The first is really beginning to recognize the diversity among men, I think, can make us more resilient to the risks of shame around our particular sexuality. If you think about, you know, gay leather men, you know, strutting it at the pride parade, those are men in the vibrance, vitality, creativity of male sexuality. And if you happen to be a straight man looking at that liberated form of sexuality, if you can say, hey, I wonder what it is about this man's sexuality that connects in any way to mine in terms of the vibrance, in terms of the visceralness, the focus on smells or tastes or visuals or, you know, playfulness, creativity, novelty. These are things that by embracing the diversity among us, we can begin to become less afraid of whatever our particular nuanced expression is. And then the other is just doing a degree of concerted effort to know yourself. Take a look at your hottest fantasies, your peak sexual experiences, the things in life that have most drawn you in or that have really kind of melted your knees. You know, those things are telling you something about yourself. And if you're comparing your lived sexual experience negatively in some way to what you think your sexuality ought to be, you may be comparing some shoulds about what you think your sexuality ought to look like in purity culture or religious or cultural norms, and you might not be accepting your sexuality as it is. All the pleasure comes from accepting the nature of your sexuality as it is and finding the consensual, appropriate, vibrant, and safe ways for you to express that with or without a partner. So true. And I love everything you just said there. This has been absolutely fascinating, Eric, and I can't wait to speak further with you in the next episode about sexual consent. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Eric. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your new book? 
I'm all over social media at Dr. Eric Fitz, D-R-E-R-I-C-F-I-T-Z. That's also my website, DrEricFitz.com. There are links there to my book, but you can also find my book wherever books are sold. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 